Hello, uh, this is Joe Hodes. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer for Wana Brands. We are one of the largest edibles manufacturer in North America and also one of the most trusted brands in edibles. And I'm excited to uh, say that I am now part of the Planting Seeds podcast with Senator Sharif Street of Pennsylvania, where for the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about a number of different issues and, and how those are affecting the folks in Pennsylvania, the legislation in Pennsylvania, and how that moves forward. And uh, we've got a whole host of different topics that we're going to dive into. We're going to be covering topics from social equity to how the legislative process works to how Pennsylvania is looking at best practices from around the country to create um, hopefully what will be one of the, the best uh, legalized systems in the country. And we'll bring on a lot of folks that have really deep expertise in some of the areas, whether it's cultivation to licensing uh, to social equity programs. So I think a lot of really good, rich material to talk through with the uh, senator and understanding how this process then works to bring forward um, what hopefully will be an adult use legalization effort in Pennsylvania. So starting with backgrounds, would love to hear your background, how you ended up a senator in, in Pennsylvania. Well, first look, uh, planting seeds, that's a great, uh, it was a name, it's a great metaphor for so many things. We see too many ideas that ultimately turn into uh, good legislation, turn into policy and, and can change lives. So for me, so I can sort of talk about the journey of cannabis and, and journey of my life. The original Senator Street to introduce cannabis legislation was my uncle, uh, former Senator T. Milton Street, the late great. He's uh, passed away last year. But he, back in the 80s, he was the first senator, first legislate, legislator in America to propose legalization of adult use cannabis. He talked about the things, the problems it could solve. And he also talked about the disparate enforcement. Look, my uncle was a visionary. He got elected to the legislature, convinced his little brother to run for city council. Uh, that was my father. Uh, my dad went on to have a great career in council and to serve as mayor of Philadelphia. My uncle served in the House and the Senate. And so I kind of grew up in politics, but it started off as sort of movement politics. It wasn't it wasn't sort of your tradition it was non traditional people out in the streets talking about how to make social change. And even back then, I guess that were would have been sort of the vestiges of the hippies who were talking about the fact that cannabis was a plant. There were we could we there was no reason for the prohibition, that there were racial disparities. So years later, after I had a decent career practicing law I got elected to the Senate after working for my predecessor briefly, Senator Shirley Kitchen, and, and being a part of her team for her very long tenure. Uh, and people brought the idea to me that we should, we should, I should join with folks who were advancing cannabis. At that time, there was only one member of the legislature that was talking about aggressively talking about moving cannabis legislation. I decided to take it on. Since then, we built out. There were no Republicans. There were very few Democrats. Since then, now there there there's bipartisan support. Senator Laughlin has has joined Senator Regan. Other Republicans are now talking about it. There are multiple bills in the House and the Senate, and we have a marijuana program, and we are moving very close towards adopting a recreational adult use. But for me, the genesis of my interest was walking around, living in the neighborhood near Temple, and watching as Temple students who tended to be a higher income tended to be more likely to be white not getting stopped for smoking cannabis, but the neighborhood kids doing the same thing will get stopped and get records. And if we're going to have disparate enforcement, we really didn't care if this group of people did it. It seemed like it was just another excuse to over-police communities of color. And so that's where my interest came. But then I've learned so much about it over the years. And you kind of started to talk about this for a second, but you, you said that 
it was more movement oriented back in in the earlier days when your when your uncle first uh, proposed some legislation. Tell me the difference that you've seen between then and and today in terms of what is that shift and what has created that shift in terms of legalization from movement to whatever we would call it today. I think it's. I don't know what the good term would be if you have a good term for it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I have a good term, but it, it's like many other issues. And now it's more of a mainstream issue. Um, work for one, we have a legal cannabis industry, even if it is restricted to the medical community. Thirty-three states have some form of legalization, and there are lawyers and lobbyists and business people who are all engaged and involved. And what I meant by movement, it was just sort of people who were saying, "Look, this is what we believe. This is our freedom. This was about their personal rights." People who thought of it either a social justice issue or a personal freedom issue. And now there are business people engaged. But the other difference is back then it was sort of, you know, there, there was one senator holding a rally, my uncle, and lots of people out there supporting him. But the rest of the legislature didn't really take it seriously. Now it's something that's taken very seriously. Now we have portions of state government where departments have issued studies. The Auditor General has issued a report about tax revenue. So we are much more serious about passing legislation. But with that, it feels very different than when my uncle was standing there with a bullhorn on the back of a truck with hundreds of people out in the street talking about this issue along with so many other issues. If that gives you a sense of what I'm talking about. Yeah, for sure it does. And I think part of what I was trying to get at is like, is that is that a necessary evolution? Is that kind of what happens, right? You take it from- yeah movement initially, and then business gets involved, and then dollars get involved, and then suddenly it, it gains more attention. Well, and- absolutely. I would say that that's true of almost everything that we do, right? Most things start off with a, a small group of people who've been built to a larger group of people, and then it becomes institutionalized. You, you have to do it because in the movement cannabis, it was about, it was a product of the earth and all the medicinal benefits. Now, today we have to look at well, what is the THC count going to be? How you deal with mold remediation? Those are real issues because if you're smoking, once you have it, now you need to make sure that the people who are getting it are getting a fair product at a decent price. So those are real issues that it's, it's just a byproduct of success. So I wouldn't suggest, some people say, well, we want to get back to the feeling of a movement. Well, certainly you want to have that energy, but it's not a bad thing that we've been successful. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, I would say that the industry itself has a little bit of an identity crisis. There are those people that have been involved from the early days when it was a, more of a movement, you know, to more latecomers. And, you know, I'd probably put myself towards the latecomer category since I've been involved since like 2012. But there's this identity crisis of, are we a, a movement and, and social change or are we business trying to get this legalization across the finish line, which has, of course, benefits to all of the, the reasons that you would make the change as a movement. But feels different than saying, you know, it's all of us come together and saying this this plant should be legal. So we, we suffer from that. I, and I see debates daily on LinkedIn and other places between different factions within our industry. And sometimes that's, that's hard. I think people who don't accept the fact that there are certain processes that have to occur and a certain evolution for change to actually happen at a legislative level kind of resist that and feel like it should be legal. Their first is going through that process. It's just like anything else. The civil rights movement was once about could people sit at lunch counters and, and eat fair and, and people of color, could black and white folks marry each other? Well, you get to a point where clearly you can sit at a lunch counter and you get a marriage certificate. But now now if you're in a marriage, well, what is it a racial or not? If you want to use that metaphor, 
got to make it work. You got to do all the work because you're still a husband and wife. They got to figure out how to pay the bills, how to raise kids and do all those other things. I think that's kind of what cannabis is doing. You know, we went from the point where can we get married? Can we express our love to now? How do we do this? How do we make it work? So we moved past the initial movement. And you look back, if you look back in, in many other things, that's what naturally happens. And so now people who are medical patients, for there was a time when a kid had epilepsy and they were having un- seizures. You'd have to go to a back alley or call a guy and meet him in the, in the back of his car or, or you know, in the bathroom to buy some cannabis so that your kid would not be able to stop having seizures. Clearly, you can now go to a dispensary with a prescription from a doctor and get cannabis. That is a great evolution. But now you're buying it from a store, so we need to look at all the regulatory factors that go from that. And that's not a bad thing, but it is an evolution. The thing, reason cannabis is having a deadly crisis is because the movement isn't over. It's still not federally legal. There's still stigma attached to it. So we're kind of in that hybrid stage. Maybe cannabis hadn't gotten married, but it's got engaged. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I like that. <laughs> Segway for a second. You mentioned stigma. So I live in, I live in Colorado. Um, it's been state legal here since 2014. Well, actually, earlier than that, legislation passed earlier, but implemented in, in January 2014. By and large, the stigma, for the most part, is is gone here, right? It, it's just a part of life. People just accept it. It is what it is. How would you characterize the current state of stigma in Pennsylvania? Is it still an issue? Is it still a thing? Pennsylvania is a big, diverse state. People who live where I live on in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia would describe ourselves as living on the East Coast. I would say if you live around here, there's not much stigma attached to it. If you live in um, if you live in Pittsburgh, you describe yourself as living in the Midwest. There's a little bit less, there's not too much stigma there. If you live in Greene County, you describe yourself as living a part of the greater West Virginia area. And I think there might be some stigma there. If you live in Tioga County, you live in an area that is the borders of parts of New York that no one ever heard of. And people probably, there's some stigma there. So it's not uniform. It takes seven hours to go from Philadelphia to Erie in a car. You could sooner drive to Richmond, Virginia from Philadelphia. So to give you some sense of the size and scale of the state. And so I, I think it depends on where you are. You know, if you're in, like I said, and, and that's part of why the legislation, pro, legislative process has been complicated because people see it so differently. I think it depends on where you are, but the stigma isn't going statewide, but it certainly is significantly diminished. And if you're walking around Philadelphia, probably would feel like you're walking around Denver, not a lot of stigma. So to the point of those who maybe still hold some of that stigma in those areas of the state, and obviously, you know, part of your job is to to bring everyone together around issues so that they can, you know, move forward or not, depending on what the issue is. But in this particular case with cannabis, what do you think is like the top one or two things that you feel like breaks through to people? Is it is it the fact that it can be used potentially as medicine? Is it the financial, the you know, the tax benefits? Is it creating a regulated, safer industry? Because I, my experience has been that you know when I used to early days, I would have different states come through our facilities and tour, and it struck me that they all felt like we were creating cannabis, and I and I'd have to tell them like it exists in your state, whether or not you know it or whether you see it. There is tremendous amount of cannabis being sold in your state already. It didn't matter what state it was, right? So all we're doing is we're creating a regulated, legalized system. So is it is it that message that helps to, to kind of break through? Well, look, I think I think that helps. Although people tend to know it, it's there. You got to remind them. 
The other thing is, look, you know, the big message is cannabis is a gateway drug as a uh, sort of reefer madness. There are still parts of the state. We had a, a legislator who was a leader in the uh, Republican caucus here in the Senate that just retired uh, a little while ago, who was st- still talking about uh, the reefer madness movie. You know, the reality is that we know that addiction to serious drugs like opioids and narcotics goes down when you move towards cannabis legalization. So it's not a drug where having more legal access increases the likelihood of addiction to more serious drugs. It it actually decreases it. We know that people who are are one of the ways people get hooked on cannabis is folks like firefighters who have a back injury have to chronically take pain medicine in order to do their job. If they can take cannabis, aren't going to get hooked on the opioids. So there are a whole lot, a lot of reasons and just doing some of that. Second thing is they say, well, what's going to happen when the kids get a hold of it? Well, what I tell you, yeah, what I tell you this is, what I tell you, what I, when we ride people and, and one of, and several of my colleagues have put it out, look, there's no card check for the guy that's selling cannabis on the, in, the, in the black market or the illegal market or the legacy market, however you want to call it. But if you're going to a dispensary, those folks invested serious resources in getting a license and they don't want to lose it. So there's going to be card check. And if we do it right, the legacy market will shrink or maybe disappear. And therefore, access of places where kids can get a hold of it goes down. So we're actually making it harder for kids to get cannabis by making it easier for adults to get it legally. Those are two of the big talking points that you hear from folks. And then the final thing is, will it drive revenue? And the answer is absolutely it will. Drive revenue, create jobs, something that people are generally steeped for. Well, I would imagine for you guys, you know, and, and my East Coast geography is rough. I was born in New York, but I, I left the East Coast a long time ago. But you're surrounded by New Jersey and New York and Maryland, all of which, you know, have legal cannabis now. So I look at different states where parts of the state will allow uh, dispensaries and sell marijuana and parts of the state won't. And I just think to myself, they're going to buy it, whether they're going to go 10 miles away and buy it or whether they're going to buy it in your town. All you're doing is forfeiting that potential tax revenue and you know being on the right side of history. So is that part of the pressure you guys have felt looking at all the states around you that have legalized? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of folks that say that they look at it. For instance, gaming, right? For years, gaming was illegal in Pennsylvania. But in Philadelphia, where I'm sitting right now, we were literally 45 minutes from Atlantic City, which was the gaming hub, which was the second largest gaming hub of the world. We weren't stopping anybody from gambling. We were just making sure that all those Pennsylvanians gave their tax revenue to New Jersey. And that was like that for decades. We don't want to make the same mistakes with cannabis. You can get to New Jersey for 15 minutes of where, where I'm sitting in my office. You can get to, and there's, but like you pointed out, between because of New York State, Maryland, and New Jersey, there are very few parts of Pennsylvania where you can't get to someplace where you could buy it legally pretty quickly. It makes sense for us not to forego that tax revenue and understanding that not only do we have a legacy market where people can get it illegally, people can buy it legally in other states. And we know that interstate transport is not legal, but there's nobody checking cars going from Pennsylvania to New Jersey or New York. Clearly, there'll be people who indulge. And that's actually an interesting question. Your perspective would be that currently law enforcement isn't targeting that. Because, you know, when Colorado was one of the few legal states, it was known that if you were going to drive through Kansas or Nebraska or any place near Colorado, like, just be careful because if they see Colorado plates, they're going to pull you over. But that doesn't sound like it's necessarily a thing for you guys. 
there are probably in Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia, hundreds of thousands of people that live in New Jersey that just come into Philadelphia to do, go to work and vice versa, or live in Pennsylvania. There are people that commute from New York City down here or from here up there. So given the way our region works, it just wouldn't be practical. It's not like there's one or two. It's a significant portion of the cars are have regional license plates. I would say probably in the greater Philadelphia area, probably 30, 40% of the population lives in Delaware or New Jersey because the city is situated right on the corner of the state. Pittsburgh is situated really close to Ohio. Scranton is, is near Jersey as well, a different part. A lot of our towns or cities are situated on sort of the rim of the state. And so it's it's pretty easy to get. Erie is real close to Buffalo, New York, and, and the New York. It's just too easy for people to get to other parts of the state. And they're, and they're not just coming in because they were buying weed, something because they've been doing it for years. So law, it's not practical for law enforcement to police license plates like that. Gotcha. I'm going to switch gears for a quick second, and I want to ask you, I'm going to take it back to the to the show itself, Planting Seeds. I kind of know from my perspective what I hope to accomplish with this show, but I thought I'd, I'd ask I'd ask you, you know, what what would you say would be the the goals for the discussions that we're going to have? You know, and we're going to deep dive, I think, in the future into a lot of these subjects on a sort of individual basis. So this is more of a broad overview, but what are you what are you hoping to accomplish with uh, with this program? We're going to get a chance to explore issues and let regular folk who may have a passing interest but haven't really thought about all the issues. And there may be somebody, people who thought about it from one perspective, but haven't thought about some of the other benefits. There may be people who are on here because, hey, I'm a, a black or brown activist and I'm concerned about disparate enforcement. And so that's why I'm for cannabis legalization. But I don't really know how to talk to other people about it. And I never really thought about that there are moms who might live in the suburbs or live anywhere who are concerned about just making it easier for their kids to get access because their kids have epilepsy and maybe the current version of cannabis makes it really hard because bringing recreational adult use should bring down the overall price as well. That's an issue. You can't use insurance. And that might not be your issue. You didn't think about it. There could be people who are farmers, a small farmer who this can be a part of how they subsidize their farm and they're already growing corn and, and raising cattle. And now they can grow cannabis that can help subsidize their income. But they never thought about the criminal justice implications that for a person in the inner city. So I think if you want to keep with the farming metaphor, sort of a cross-pollination so that people can understand why other people care about the issue. Because most people who are for this are for this because they have their own specific niche reason. And there might be other people that just never thought about it. There might be people who never thought about the fact that firefighters or construction workers might want us to move towards recreational adult use so that they can use it in a way they're not really getting high, but they're using it for, for chronic pain and they need it and they need this to move forward more comprehensive legislation so that, you know what, so that one, they can afford it. And two, they don't, when they get drug tested, they're not thrown off of job sites. The Western PA Carpenters Union raised that to me. So there are a lot of people got a lot of issues and I think this is a great platform to explore those issues. Well, I think that's great. And I, and I think that the last point you made is one that I think can probably take a whole episode for us, which is talking about how does legalization at the state level interact with different employers' current drug policies? And what does that mean, for example, for insurance? That's something that I still am, am shocked, to my knowledge, at least, like in states that have been legal for a long time, like Colorado and others, 
you still have a disconnect, right? You still have, so if someone was injured on the job, the policy from the you know national insurance companies is to still drug test. And if you, if you drug test and cannabis is found in your system, which we know it will be if you've consumed in the past, let's say two weeks, you weren't high maybe at the time of the accident, but you know, you'll, you'll test positive. It invalidates a lot of insurance policies. And so it's a very complicated situation that I don't really feel like has been addressed. You brought that up in particular with the with the unions. I think a union would be a powerful voice in that discussion. Absolutely. Like I said, I was talking to some carpenters out in Western PA, and they brought it up. They said, "Listen, this is an issue for us. We got members who are using this. They're not getting high on the job, but they they're getting booted off because the employers don't want to get rid of them. But they're concerned that their insurance, if something goes wrong, will coverage won't hold up." Yep. If these guys test positive for cannabis in their system, they said, you got to do something about this. It's hurting our workers and it's hurting and it's making employers have to fire people that they don't want to fire. Is that so, something you guys are building into legislation somehow? Yeah. We, I envision that the cannabis rec bill will be sort of a comprehensive omnibus cannabis bill. And one of the things it will address, what is incapacitation versus merely consumption? And right now we need a capacitation standards. If we had that, but I chaired bank insurance committee, you could probably get insurance actuaries to then underwrite policy saying that if you meet state standards, state standards for incapacitation with respect to cannabis supply, they're going to want us, the government, to develop those standards. And right now we don't have them. You can be a cannabis, legal cannabis patient in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. And if you're stopped, you can, for while driving to work, maybe you ever use cannabis, like you said, in a week, and you got a cannabis card, but technically speaking, you're driving while under the influence, if you test positive for cannabinoids in your system. That's just ridiculous, but that's the state of the law right now. And so we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, I look, I think if you guys came up with a way to indicate intoxication or test for it, and usually from what I've heard, different law enforcement and companies I've talked to, it's generally going to be some combination of a biometric data, you know, saliva, blood, you know, hair follicles, whatever, combined with the the physical, right? So can I touch my nose or my, or my motor skills okay? If you guys were able to find a way to identify that and say, this is the standard by which we should apply any sort of insurance issues, traffic stops, whatever, that would be groundbreaking, I would say. So yeah, look, there are people who know how to do it. There's certainly experts that do. We wouldn't be inventing anything. What we would be doing is standardizing it. So there will be standardized field sobriety tests coupled with biometric information. The issue isn't that law enforcement or insurance companies don't understand how to test it. The issue is if someone took you to court, you just not any judge. You know, ten different judges could apply ten different standards, and you don't know what a verdict would look like. To the extent that we look at best practices, look at what the data says and standardize it, you can now say, if I'm on this side of the line, we're safe. We're on that side of the line, we're not. That's what you're going to need to get good insurance coverage, certainty in the marketplace. A government is uniquely positioned to provide that, and, and we should. I agree. That would be pretty huge. Obviously, spent some time looking at other legislation from around the country, thought about the needs specific to Pennsylvania. But in that process, what would you say of all the various regulatory environments you've looked at, what is one to emulate and what is one not to emulate? Like, what do you think is good and what's bad? 
what I will say is, look, we got to strike a balance between having cannabis everywhere where no one can make any money and, and suppliers might go out of business. And ultimately that breaks the price up because you people go out of business and having a market that's so restricted that the price stays up and therefore the black market, legacy market continues to flourish. We got to find that sweet spot where we have enough regulation. And the other thing is being nimble. Well, it's just like any other product, the markets don't have fluctuations. And so what we've talked about is having a cannabis controlled order, which, you know, for instance, we have a milk marketing board. I think we changed the name to the milk board of Pennsylvania. And the milk board simply adjusts the, the production of milk to make sure the price and availability of milk are reasonable. That if there's not so much milk that it's spoiling on shelves and or they can't sell it. And there's not so little that people can't afford to get uh, get milk. And so they sort of look at what's going on in the market, take testimony and make adjustments. We're suggesting something similar for cannabis. And I'll tell you, people say, why do you need to do that? A legislature can do that. It takes the legislature a long time. There's 203 members of the House, 50 senators, and we need the governor to sign it. Anytime you got to get the majority of 254 people to agree on to make it a rule change, it's probably too cumbersome a process. So we're going to yeah. try and come up with a process where a much more narrowly focused and smaller group of people can make that decision. We've been calling that a cannabis control board, but basically it's just a, a an expedited way of getting good regulations that can keep up with the market. So that's interesting because the, what you just described to me would say that you are defaulting to sort of, I'll call it, and by the way, feel free to correct me if you think these terms are wrong, but Called government regulation of supply and controlling that supply versus free market economics, where, and we see this happening in other states, right? So there's oversupply, prices plummet, people go out of business. There are these natural business cycles that occur. So you're leaning more towards the side of sort of a government control situation versus. No, I wouldn't say that in Pennsylvania. I would say our position is the middle position because we have a government control system for alcohol that is real government control. As in the government buys it, the government sells it, the government regulates it. So the government, there are people in this state who are advocating that we should turn cannabis over to the liquor control board. In Pennsylvania, we are not like other states. I don't support that position, but that would be a government control position where the government doesn't just regulate it, the government controls it. If you want to buy a bottle of wine in Pennsylvania, you have to buy it from a store owned by the state of Pennsylvania. And I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So we would have a system that is the market would do what it does, but if there needs to be market corrections, there needs to be a group of folks who can do that. If you think about it, like I said, we do that for milk. Nobody thinks that the, we overregulate milk, but we do do it for milk. We do that for a lot of agricultural commodities. Cannabis is itself an agricultural commodity, and we're moving towards regulating it like other agricultural commodities. But we, it, it shouldn't be completely unregulated in the sense sort of like making ink pens are. We don't regulate making ink pens too much at all. I think it's, if you think about it, it's a consumed agricultural commodity, which means it has a certain shelf life. And I think we have to treat it like that. And so we're trying to move it in the space to treat it like other agricultural commodities, not overregulate it like a drug, but also recognize they're not ink pens that can sit on the storage shelf forever, make the pens today and sell them three years from now or two weeks from now. Cannabis doesn't work that way. And so it's got to be regulated. And I think if you look broadly around the country at agricultural commodities, there is a reasonable level of regulations. And I know people in some places it's been over-regulated, 
but we're trying to find that sweet spot. So I, I call that maybe like slow and controlled roads, right? So versus some states like Oklahoma, where they said, come one, come all, unlimited licenses, 500 bucks, you know, get a license if you want it. That's sort of one extreme versus let's say we put, you know, a certain plan account in place, certain number of licenses, let the market stabilize, see where that, you know, where the price points are. Do we need to allow for more licenses? Do we need to pull back licenses? Kind of that sort of control growth. Is that a more accurate way to put it? We probably would have a certain number of licenses and we would expand or, or contract both the number of licenses and also the cannabis styles would be both. We're going to keep the number of licenses stable, but we're going to expand cannabis size. So you might say, yep, we need to have more producers. Those are decisions that uh, the cannabis control will make. And like I said, that's pretty much how we do milk and a lot of other, lot of other uh, agriculture products now. And it works pretty well in that space. And I think the other thing is who can staff it and who can get it done. And our Department of Agriculture is used to this sort of model. And so I think that they're like the learning curve for the people that are staffing it will, will be a lot less steep because we're analogizing it to something they know how to do. And the question is, is this going to be treated like a, are we going to the Department of Health, which used to regulating sort of dangerous drugs that are needed for, say, cancer treatment? Or are we going to treat this like how we regulate the growth of uh, or the production of milk, which, you know, is, is regulated obviously a lot differently. And I think the people I want to have involved with, right, with monitoring this should be treated more like milk and less like cancer drugs. We are coming close to time on this. So I'm going to ask one last question that'll, I think, set us up for some of our future discussions. But with where things stand right now, within your your constituents, they're not, sorry, not your constituents, but with your, your call wow. in, in the Senate, where are the holdouts and, and what, are the, what are the big issues that they're holding out on? Is it, is it cannabis related or is it more broad and tied to other issues as sometimes occurs in politics? Well, look, I don't know that folks are holding out so much as now trying to figure out how to get on the same page. I think there are lots of people who would vote, who have a version of cannabis legalization that they would vote for. But remember, it's got to be 26 of us in the Senate agreeing to vote for the same thing and the same thing in the House. So I think we've moved past the point where people are thinking, should we do this? But how do we do it? How do we come together on it? There are, like I said, probably half a dozen different uh, bills or probably dozens of ideas. So I think what we're trying to do is now synthesize something and come to some reasonable agreement that can get 26 votes in the Senate, 102 in the House. That sounds great. I can tell you there's a lot of cannabis companies that would be happy to be part of that that process of Pennsylvania. So I think it's going to be exciting. And the good news is, you know, despite the fact that there are a lot of other states that have legalized ahead of you guys, it's also good because you can now look back and say best practices, you know, best companies, understand where the pitfalls are and create hopefully a, a stronger and better system. Absolutely. Look, I'm I think we're at Zvay, we may not be first to get it done, but we'll be the first to get it done right. <laughs> good. I like that. Thank you. And this uh, this should lead to some some really good in-depth conversations. I mean, I think the goal is to deep dive into some of these issues, bring some guests on, have them talk about it from their perspectives. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll hear a lot. I, I do want to come back to the social justice issue and expungement and kind of where you guys are kind of putting that within the legislation and um, I think it's, you know, it's critically important that states recognize that early on versus after the fact. So we we'll look forward to uh, having some more discussion around that. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to talking with you about it. And we got a lot of ideas from 
set social equity licenses to social equity grants to how we make sure micro grants exist for small farmers. There are lots of there are lots of cool ideas. We look forward to exploring them with you. Sounds good. Thank you.